Traveling within Canada is incredibly hard. I don't think most people around the world realize it, but Canada is massive. It's the second largest country globally, and the transport options here, I'll be frank, they suck. The quick options are expensive. I mean, it costs more to fly from one end of Canada to the other than to fly to other continents. And the cheap options? They take forever. The transport landscape in Canada is extremely limited, which means that if you don't have a car, there are barriers to getting around. This is a problem not just for people in Canada, but for people who would like to visit and spend their tourism dollars here. We're going to unpack the importance of accessible transport in Canada. We're joined by Paris Marx, a socialist writer, host of the podcast Tech Won't Save Us, and critic of Tech Futures. They'll help us understand why getting around Canada is so hard. They'll explain the deep structural changes needed to create a sustainable mobility system that serves the public good. This is Alpaca My Bags, the responsible travel podcast, here to help you travel in a way that's better for you and for the planet. I'm Erin Hines, travel writer, accompanied as always by my producer, Katie Lohr. Today we're diving into an issue that has frustrated many people who live in and visit what we now call Canada. Is this the first time that you've listened to Alpaca My Bags? If so, make sure you've hit the follow button right now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and your favorite podcast app because there is plenty more to come this season. If you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at at alpacamybagspod. You can also DM or even email us anytime. All of our contact info is in the show notes. We're talking about transportation across lands that are the ancestral home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit, and Métis people. We want to honor the Indigenous people who have lived and worked on this land historically and presently. This acknowledgement is a basic but fundamental step towards reconciliation between us settlers and Indigenous peoples. So, Katie. Yes? (laughs) Do you have any (laughs) travel plans coming up? Well, off the top of my head, guess where I'm headed? Your good old hometown of Ottawa. Woohoo! She's going back. (laughs) What about you? We are going somewhere at the end of November. So I'm officially in hermit mode. Yes. I'm not leaving the house because I refuse to get sick, i.e., get COVID before this trip. But yeah, because we have travel coming up, there's a couple things I've been thinking about. Mainly like three big factors that I've been thinking are like really affecting the travel landscape right now. Two of them you and I have talked about a lot like over the last (laughs) two and a half years. (laughs) First, there was the pandemic. Yes. Still an issue. Then there was the sort of like return to travel that I guess started like kind of early last year and is still going. I would say it's like majorly come back beginning of this year, like 2022 was like the big boom back to travel. Yeah, and kind of peaked during summer in the Western Hemisphere. And from what I'm reading, like it is slowing down a little bit because summer, of course, tends to be like peak travel time. But it's still an issue. Like Pearson Airport is still a hot mess. Is it? Yeah. It's not as bad. Okay. But it's still bad. (laughs) I am still scared to go there. (laughs) 
But now we have a new factor that we get to talk about. Yay. Wait, what is the new factor? (laughs) Inflation. Oh, God. (laughs) Ruining all our travel dreams because now, like, no one can afford to travel. Uh. It's like travel already was, like, such a financial privilege. And now it's even more so because inflation, like everything, is just causing, you know, like, flights, hotels, all the things you need to buy when you travel to become more expensive. This is something that is top of mind for a lot of people, I think. So I was trying to think of like a tip I could give people for like (laughs) how to not let inflation ruin their travel dreams. Okay, do you have any tips? I'm drawing a blank. Like I wish I had more to say on it, but I don't have any tips other than like maybe go follow Danielle Desir Corbett and listen to all of her budget travel tips and learn how to save extra, extra money. Ooh, another good person to call out is Gabby Beckford from Paxlight. She's on Instagram, like Twitter. She has her website. If there's any time to be looking for travel opportunities, so like scholarships and bursaries and stuff to support travel, now is the time. And she shares all of these opportunities like every week in an amazing newsletter. If you don't follow Gabby, follow her. Now is the time. I have like, this is my my always my go-to tip for, I guess it's just generally a budget travel tip. First of all is like the great pandemic lesson, which is, Stay close to home. It's always or generally a little bit cheaper. As we will uh, unpack in this episode. Not necessarily in Canada, but... (laughs) Yeah, yeah, we'll get into that. But my big tip is if you're on a limited budget, plan your trips far in advance, especially now, because that's the best way to secure like discounts and Mm. to snag the best prices for things. So I am a Google Alerts queen I set up Google Alerts for like every destination I could possibly want to go to. And I just get emails every time prices drop or every time they rise. And I'll track flights for like years, literally years, waiting for them to like drop to price that's good. And this has worked out really well for Luke and I. But what it means is you're often not picking a destination just out of nowhere that you want to go to. It's more like letting the destination pick you. So for example, Luke and I always knew that we wanted to go to Jordan. It's very expensive to fly there. So we didn't really ever like say, oh, this is the year we're going to go to Jordan. And we had all these alerts going and we're subscribed to a lot of newsletters where they share flight deals. And one day the deal arrived and it was $400 return from Pearson to Amman. And we snagged that flight. And that's how we traveled Jordan on a budget because really like the biggest chunk of that budget went towards flying. Mm -hmm. And we got those flights for $400 and it was just a flash sale. Um, So we literally got the email and booked the flight that day. And it was decided that day, okay, in three months, we're going to Jordan. Oh, my God, that's amazing. That's essentially what Mark and I did with our trip to Portugal this year. We knew that we just had vouchers and we had to use them before the end of 2021. And we just kind of were looking out for whatever AirTap or AirTAP had going on and just looked out for things that would fit the vouchers that we had, the cheapest thing. And it just so happened to be Madeira Island. And we just decided to spend all of our time there and try and make it the cheapest trip possible. And it was. We came home with money, which is surprising. Yeah, I've done a lot of my travels this way. Like, I would say it's pretty rare that I've ever, like, actually 
dare I say like Iceland is the only place that Lucas and I were like, we are going to Iceland this year. Every other year it's been like wherever we can get a good deal is where we'll go. And then the other thing like that I always tell people is if you have friends or family that live in places you want to go, like top those people. Like every time that I've gone to British Columbia or Alberta, it's been to stay with a friend or my brother. So yeah, if you know people living in places that you'd like to go, invite yourself over. (laughs) I mean, the other hot tip I'll just say is don't build a deck. Just don't spend all your money on wood. Then maybe you'll be able to afford travel sometime soon. <laughs> Katie's speaking from personal experience in case <laughs> in case that wasn't clear. But Katie, if anyone wants to visit Katie, she has a really beautiful deck yes, in the backyard now. Happy to host you if you're coming to Canada. We have a great deck. Regardless, inflation's not going anywhere anytime soon. So we can all anticipate budget travel for the next how many years, Aaron? I don't know. I don't understand how the economy works, if I'm serious. No, me neither. Why don't we just get rid of money? Oh, yeah, that'd be great. Let's just trade things. (laughs) Yeah. What would you trade? What would be your commodity? (laughs) Like, what would I do for people? Yeah. Oh, that's such a good question. Oh, I would be people's gardener. I would grow vegetables for people. That's, That's what I would a great do because I'm pretty good at that. Yeah, and then you could just trade your produce. I'm good at like sowing seeds, which sounds silly, <laughs> but like I really enjoy it. Like you just, you see their little heads poke out and they need a lot of nurturing. So that's what I would do. So what would you do? You're so crafty. You have so many skills. I think I'm pretty crafty. I think I just have a knack for talking in general. You would be the community therapist. I would be the community (laughs) therapist? You think so? Yeah. Oh, my God. That's so nice of you. (laughs) I mean, you'd be my therapist? (laughs) I think I would be the the community announcer. Like, I would be basically the community version of the morning announcements team in high school. Oh, like, this is what's going on in the community. Aaron has fresh seeds available. Yeah. Yeah. I would be the town PR and I would go around to everyone, find out what their news is. I would just gather everyone in the town, in the community, and yell out all the things that are going on. I don't think that's a valuable job. Is it a valuable yeah, job? Yeah, it is. It is. Okay. I think it is because you need someone like keeping everyone in the loop. That's true. So I would come to you and I would say, hey, Aaron, what kind of news do you have going on? What are the fresh, what are the fresh vegetables that you have being grown? Okay. I'll trade you a vegetable for me announcing that you have this vegetable. <laughs> Wait, can I have a second skill? Yeah, obviously. Because I also think I would maybe run the cat sanctuary. Yeah, this isn't capitalism, Erin. You can do whatever you want. Honestly, this is what I would do. I would have a cat sanctuary that would be a garden. But would the cats be allowed in the garden? Please tell me no. Why can't they be in the garden? Because they would poop in there. Yeah, they clean it up. Erin, that's disgusting. We wash our vegetables before we eat them. <laughs> that's true. Should we make this like in a video game world? Our our world? <laughs> should we do that? Yeah, we should. You should just get Animal Crossing, and we can have an island together and just live out this fantasy of non-reality. Animal Crossing sounds really fun, though. The thing is, I've never played it because I know that if I start to, I'll become a total addict. Because that's what happened when I played The Sims and I had to delete it because it got bad. I didn't know you were a Sims girl. Oh, my God. Uh, I love learning new things about you. No, in the time you've known me, I've been in in Sims addiction mode. 
What? But I always, I don't tell people because I'm so self-conscious about my Sims addiction. Oh my God. This is the thing. Mark bought me a whole version of Sims and like I couldn't get into it because it was just, it was just too real life. Like it was asking Which me to one go to it? work. All Sims. They're all like this. No, 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 no. It's the wrong Sims. Listen, Roller Coaster Tycoon. That's not The Sims. Yeah, it is. It's not an official Sims game. It's not? No. It's its own game. So I'm just a roller coaster tycoon addict. Yeah, then. you're just a roller coaster tycoon. <laughs> well, I'm glad we have been able to turn around the depressing thoughts about inflation totally derailing our travel plans to all of this good stuff. I feel a lot happier now. I'm glad we talked. <laughs> yeah. Also, inflation anxiety is real and it's okay. We're all in the same boat right now. Mm-hmm. Times are tough. It's going to be okay. I hope. <laughs> that just went dark again. Maybe you should cut that. <laughs> Paris, welcome. I'm super excited to chat with you. And I'm super excited about this topic because we have a lot of listeners actually who aren't Canadian. And I know from chatting with some of our listeners in our DMs, many of them have not been to Canada. So their knowledge isn't, you know, as wide as ours. So lots of people aren't aware of how hard it is to get around Canada. But I was hoping you could share with us um, the cliff notes on your background in critiquing technology and also looking at modes of transport. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Really excited to chat with you both. Um, you know, I, I guess for me, you know, transport was something that I was interested in and have been interested in for a long time. I started traveling more often around 2013. You know, I'm I'm from Newfoundland, St. John's, Newfoundland on the east coast of Canada. You know, it's like a small provincial capital. The transit system is not great. Most people get around by cars. We don't have trains. Um, and so then being able to go to different cities and see how things worked in different places was really kind of informative for me in showing me how things could work differently in different places. And so around 2015, 2016, I started to write more, you know, freelance about transportation and technology as well. That was a moment when there was a lot of focus on Uber and smart cities and and those sorts of ideas. And then in 2018, I went back and did a master's at McGill University that was in geography. It was on transportation and technology. As a result of the work that I did on that master's, you know, looking at electric cars, ride hailing services, self-driving cars, all these sorts of things. I wrote a book based on, you know, the research that I did on that that came out recently, you know, and that's called Road to Nowhere, What Silicon Valley Gets Wrong About the Future of Transportation. And, And the book, like, I think that there's some broad aspects of it that apply to a lot of different places. But when we talk about the history, you know, in the book, I focus a lot on the United States because, you know, that's the home of the automobile, really. It's where the automobile really takes off and is entrenched, but it's also where Silicon Valley is located, right? So it really makes sense for the book to look at the U.S., but that doesn't mean that I don't have thoughts and knowledge on uh, transportation in Canada as well, being that I'm from here and have uh, been to many parts of the country. Mm-hmm. And I guess as the neighboring country, a lot of the sort of like auto-focused culture is present here as well. I think a lot of our transportation was built around the concept of the car as well in Canada. Absolutely. But before we get into the weeds, best transit system you've ever experienced in the world of everywhere oh, you've been. 
That's so hard. <laughs> I didn't um, give you a heads up about this one. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I, I've been on a bunch that like I've enjoyed. I feel like there's a special place in my heart for like, you know, the Paris Metro. I, I kind of love it. Sure, it can be like dirty sometimes, but like <laughs> it's just so kind of comprehensive, right? There's like so many stations. It's everywhere. I Yeah, I, I'd probably pick that one. Like if we're thinking North America, like obviously I really like Montreal. Um, and, you know, certainly I wish that the New York subway got a bit more investment so it wasn't so run down all the time. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. We wanted to make this episode about transportation and accessibility about our own home because like many Canadians, Katie and I are well aware of and frustrated with how difficult it is to get around Canada. So as a traveler, I must say, I sometimes feel a bit embarrassed by how little of my own home that I've seen. I have found when I chat with non-Canadians abroad, they're often surprised by the fact that I, for example, haven't been, I don't even think I've been to half of Canada's provinces. And the sad thing is, I would love to see more of Canada. It's just surprisingly challenging because first, everything from hotels to meals is expensive, so it's not cheap to travel around this country. And second, it's really hard to get around, particularly if you don't drive or have a car. And I do not have a license. I cycle everywhere <laughs> in my city, so I can't even rent a car if I want to. Basically, my whole adult life, I have relied on trains and flights to travel around Canada. In recent years, I've been really grateful to have been able to see more, mainly because my partner drives. So we, we are now able to get around by car, or I am, thanks to him. And because I have friends and family around the country that I'm able to travel and visit, um, which makes domestic travel more financially accessible for me. Um, so that's sort of my story of travel in Canada. Paris, I was hoping you could describe your experiences traveling around Canada and maybe what your personal frustrations are with the state of transport here. It's a really good point. And I, and I kind of echo the things that you're saying, but I will say that I'm from Newfoundland, right? It's very difficult to get anywhere from Newfoundland. You have to fly or there is certainly there are two ferries or I guess three ferries that will take you off the province. You need to drive to get to them. They're quite long rides. And then that takes you to Nova Scotia or Labrador, where, you know, you still usually have to have to drive for a bit longer uh, in order to get anywhere. Right. Uh, and even within the province, it, it can be difficult to get around. Sure, there are some intercity bus services, but they're not very great. They're not very reliable. For me, the first time I went to British Columbia, you know, you have to fly about three, three and a half hours to Toronto first. And then it's like, what, four and a half or five hours from Toronto to, to Vancouver, yeah. right? Like that's a, that's a lot of flying to get across <laughs> one country. As you're saying, the distances are, are really far. Airline travel can be quite expensive in Canada, particularly after the pandemic. I think we've seen it gone up a bit more. There are some more budget airlines that are in. And I feel conflicted on budget airlines because on one hand, you know, it's good to have that kind of travel be more affordable to people. But at the same time, do you want to promote more like unnecessary travel when airline travel is quite emissions intensive and things like that, right? But then if you're looking to get around outside of some of the main corridors in Canada, like between, say, Toronto to Montreal or Quebec City, or between Edmonton and Calgary, a few of the areas where it makes sense to get around in a way that's maybe not by flying, by driving or taking the train, if you're certainly between Toronto and, and Montreal or Quebec City, those things can be accessible. But otherwise, you often have to fly within Canada because the country is so large. Absolutely. And you can take the train across much of Canada, but that also is 
inaccessibly expensive. <laughs> yeah, it, it's both expensive and it takes, it takes a while, a lot of right? Time. It's a time and, commitment. Yeah, and if you think about the way that the way that many people travel right now, they might have two or three weeks of vacation during the year, and so they're trying to fit in as much as they can within that short period of time. If you have the choice to fly or or take a train that's going to be really long, especially if you're going any distance that is that is any bit notable, then it becomes harder to justify the train because then that's a bigger chunk of my short period of vacation time that has to be dedicated to actually getting to the place I want to go rather than, you know, just hopping on a flight for a few hours and getting there, right? Well, we've both alluded to some of the failures of transportation infrastructure in Canada in terms of our own experiences, but could you paint a full picture for us? What is the state of transportation across the country? What's the landscape like? And you can narrow down to one one area or just mention infrastructure depending on which region, whatever works. Sure. You know, I think I'd approach it broadly, right? Like if you're thinking about different means or different modes of getting around, you know, we have a very strong and robust infrastructure for driving around the country. If you own a car or or are able to rent a car, then you can certainly get around, right? You know, there are plenty of highways that will that you that will get you through places. I hear it's not very fun to drive through Northern Ontario, but at least you can do it, um, you know? Uh, and then if you're through the prairies, you know, I hear that that it just looks like things go on forever because everything's really flat. You know, if you're driving anywhere, it can be pretty easy. Certainly distances are large if you're, you know, depending on where you are in the country. So it can take a little while sometimes, but I think it's quite natural. Many Canadians will be used to taking road trips or, or driving long distances in order to get to where they are going. Then if you think about trains, that's that's another piece of it, right? Certainly we have Via Rail in Canada, which is the passenger train service. They tend not to own the actual rails that they drive on because those rails were privatized by the federal government in the 80s or 90s, somewhere around that period. And so that means that the trains often encounter frequent delays. And it's also, you know, just a regular train service. It's not high-speed rail or, or anything like that. Often the, the train services, especially outside key routes, will not be very frequent. Certainly there is a project that is finally kicking off right now that Via Rail has was trying to get the federal government to fund for years. And they finally um, said they would fund it last year, which is called high frequency rail in order to get a bit more frequent and faster service on that kind of Southern Ontario through to Quebec route where over half of the Canadian population lives. But that is not poised to be finished until 2030 or after that. And that's still not high speed rail, right? And and that extends to most of the country. You know, you won't have so much up north because of how remote it is up there. Um, and Newfoundland also does not have trains because they were torn up after privatization and things like that. So yeah, we have no trains, unfortunately. Then on top of that, sorry, I'm going on a little bit long, but buses, <laughs> intercity buses, certainly they exist in some parts of the country, but Greyhound has recently finished pulling out of Canada. They initially pulled out of Western Canada, now have basically fully pull out of Canada. There might be some routes that like Vancouver to Seattle, I think they might still be running. There might be some more cross-border routes that that are still operating. But basically within Canada, Greyhound doesn't operate and they were a major intercity bus provider. For the most part, you know, a lot of intercity bus services have become far less reliable. And part of the promise was that the private sector would simply fill the gaps and certainly that has not happened, right? And so then finally, I guess the other key piece is obviously the airlines. 
Canada is dominated by Air Canada, the former public airline, um, which has been privatized, but many people would say is kind of like uh, still treated as the national carrier and often gets, you know, subsidized and favorable treatment from the federal government. And then WestJet is the other big one within Canada. There are, as I said, some budget airlines that have launched recently. There are some smaller regional airlines that exist, um, but often air travel within Canada is, you know, rather expensive. And that's in part, that's because of how Airline services are taxed in Canada as well, but there are some some routes that are getting cheaper as a result of the rollout of budget services, particularly since the pandemic. If we're thinking about how most people in Canada would be traveling long distances, it would be on a plane. Yeah. Just to go back to rail travel, could you explain what the high frequency rail is? Does that just mean a separate rail track for uh, like commuter trains to take? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, via rail often does not own its own infrastructure right now. It does not own the rails because they were owned by um, CN Rail, uh, which was oh, a former public. I've had many train trips interrupted with yeah. that announcement. <laughs> All Canadians know. <laughs> exactly. And so CN used to be owned by the government. It used to be the public rail company, freight rail for the most part, but they also had the passenger service, which became via rail after privatization. This project, high frequency rail, is a recognition that this route between Southern Ontario through to Quebec has a lot of passengers on it. A lot of people live there. A lot more people would take it if it was more reliable and more frequent. And so they're finally making the investment to build out a dedicated track on that route for the trains. But as I said, this is still like a, a conventional rail track. It's not a high speed track. And so it will allow the trains to go a bit faster. It will allow them to be a bit more frequent because they won't have to be negotiating with freight rail that has priority on those on those routes on the current infrastructure. But you know, one thing that rail advocates often point out is that you know the service offered on via rail right now is actually slower than what it was decades ago, just because of how it hasn't really kept up with the demands of the public. I would say. And is really, I would argue, obviously my book is a lot about cars, I would argue is a victim of the focus that we've had on automobiles and, and all of the investment that we put in automobiles and everything else that's not a car has suffered as a result of that. Can I just say, I had no idea that this much of our transport was privatized and that that is awful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. traveled a lot in Europe and so I used the rail system a lot and that is where I became obsessed with trains and just realized like the potential for train travel and also in India like in India we got literally everywhere on trains and they were reliable they ran all the time you literally don't need a vehicle but I'm thinking specifically about my time living in the Netherlands because I lived in Groningen which is a city in the north and it's actually known for being one of the most cyclist friendly cities in the world. The entire city is built around cycling culture and something I've noticed about the Netherlands and of course like you can't compare Canada and the Netherlands because the Netherlands is so like it's so high density but you you can live your entire life there like without a car ever because you'll cycle through the cities which are built for cycling and then there are trains going literally everywhere at every moment of the day. I would never even like plan which train I was taking. If I was going to another city or another town, I would just go to the train station and there would be a train going that direction. And this to me was truly heaven. (laughs) 
Is that a possibility in Canada? Like, is it a psyche thing where we're just too obsessed with like building all our infrastructure around the concept of a car? Or is it just that we're like too big and too spread out? Is that possible for us? I would say it's a bit of both. I, I recently did an event in in Amsterdam. I was over in the Netherlands, right? And and one of the things that I feel like a lot of North American urbanists look to Amsterdam and, and the Netherlands in particular to be like, look, this is how things could could work if only we made the right investments and whatnot, right? And I would say like there certainly are things that we can learn from the Netherlands, but at the same time, after a century of building for the car, things are going to look a little bit differently, right? We're we're in a very different situation. But that's not to say that the reason that the Netherlands is the way it is, is not the result of public policy decisions, which it very much is, right? Like in the 1950s and 60s and, and even into the 70s, there was a big push for the Netherlands to be remade for the automobile, right? Like a lot of buildings were raised, a lot of public spaces were filled with cars and turned into parking lots, like all these sorts of things were happening and people were not ready to accept it, right? People fought back against it because they saw the way that their communities were changing. It was not in benefit of them in, in many cases and people were dying. There's a really prominent group at the time called um, Stop the Child Murder that you know, obviously it uses this very evocative name, but because the vehicles were rolling out, it was children in particular that were dying in elevated numbers. And for a while, the rate of road deaths in the Netherlands was actually higher than even the United States. So it was really like significant, right? It was a real shock to people who were used to a different way of getting around. And so they started campaigning to stop this rollout of the automobile, the remaking of the city for the automobile, and to really, you know, adopt policies that were more oriented around bicycles and, you know, investing in the rail system and things like that. So that's just to say, if we think about Canada now, I think there are things that we can learn from that, right? In part, the reason our transportation system is the way it is, is the result of policy decisions that were made over many decades, right? But at the same time, Canada now has the legacy of those decisions that it needs to grapple with as we think about how transportation can be different. But we also have to recognize that we're not also a small country like the Netherlands. You know, we're a vast kind of sprawling country. But also one of the things to remember there is that people still generally live in a pretty small area of that sprawling landscape, right? I think that Canadian cities could look very differently than they are today if we started to refocus some of our investment and attention away from the automobile and toward expanding transit services, expanding cycling infrastructure, and also rethinking the ways that we build our communities so that they're not so sprawling and that they don't basically enforce car dependence on people because of the way that they're built. Mm -hmm. And I think there's ways to incentivize this. Like I, I recently was in a Reddit argument with someone about whether Toronto should have a tax for cars coming in, um, which is something that from what I understand, European cities do. If you a like few. drive into a city, like you'll be you'll be charged a tax essentially to bring your car in unless you're like a resident of the city. And that's like, I guess, to encourage people to take commuter trains in and then like get around on public transport once they're in the city. But yeah, there's a lot of resistance to this idea. Yeah, <laughs> I am not a fan of it as well. London does it, Stockholm does it. And, you know, obviously the argument is you put a you put a price on driving your car into the city and then obviously fewer people will drive into the city, right? In the places where that policy has been successful, it has had to be accompanied by investments in the transit system and kind of thinking about the distribution of road space, right? I'm not a big fan of the, the approach to pricing things as a means to incentivize 
action. Because to me, I don't like to see more of society marketized. But I also look at, say, cities like Oslo or Paris that have been really successful in promoting like a change of, in how people get around. Paris has been really successful in getting people out of cars and getting more people to take transit during the pandemic, in particular, expanding cycling, getting more people onto bikes. And part of the reason for that success has not been because they've taxed drivers in that kind of way, but rather because they looked at the way that the roads were built, the way that space was distributed on those roads. And they said, you know what? we're taking these roads away from cars or we're, we're reducing the number of lanes that are available to cars. You know, we're going to make them bus lanes or we're going to make them pedestrian areas or we're going to turn them into cycle lanes. And so there are fewer places for the car to go in the city. So fewer people can actually come into the city and drive that way. And because we've redistributed the street space, buses go faster. It's easier for cyclists to get around. There's more room for them. They can feel safer. But like if, if we're talking about more of an abstract way, how we deal with these problems, my preference is not to have a price and just to look at more of the kind of structural nature of the streets and how we change that in order to incentivize different means of getting around. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think even just in discussions with people I know in Toronto who don't cycle, a lot of the avoidance of cycling has been safety people just don't feel safe biking, which is fair. Like I, I've found as I get older, I feel more nervous cycling in the city because I'm just more hyper aware of like how quickly my life could change if something goes wrong. Building the infrastructure to make cycling more safe would really incentivize people without having to use money. So I think it's important to highlight inequities that we personally may not face, um, maybe because of the individual privileges we have. Um, so I'm curious what you would say are the most alarming inequities that are being caused by the failures of our infrastructure in Canada for transport. Oh, yeah, there, there are many, right? By focusing on the automobile over everything else, you've essentially created a system where much of the population has to own an automobile as well, especially if it's difficult for them to afford it. And if you think about it, like an ownership of, of a vehicle in Canada is somewhere between like eight to $13,000 a year. And that's really significant for a lot of people, especially someone on minimum wage or, or close to it, right? And so then on top of that, there are the people who can't even afford to get a vehicle at all, right? Really marginalized, low-income people. And depending on where they are, that can mean access to really kind of poorly funded and infrequent, unreliable transit services, but that's all they have, right? And so then maybe they're out waiting for the bus every morning for 15, 20 minutes. You don't know when it's going to arrive. Is it going to be there on time? You probably won't have a bus shelter. So maybe you're just open to the elements then. And then maybe, you know, you need to transfer a few times to different buses and be waiting. It might take you two hours to get to work or something just because of how unreliable the system is, right? And so I think that we've set the system up in a way that's certainly beneficial to certain commercial interests that certainly works really well for certain privileged and even middle-class people in society. But I think that there's a lot of people who this system doesn't work for as well. And then I think if we think really specifically, intercity bus services in particular have been very important for people in rural areas, in remote communities, in order to access services, doctor services, reach family, things like that. And so as we saw, the exit of Greyhound from Canada and the shutdown of things like the Saskatchewan public bus service, that meant that a lot of kind of marginalized people were then left without that form of transportation. And this has been a particular concern for Aboriginal women who 
would use those services, but then when they're taken away or if they live in places where they were never available, they end up having to hitchhike. And of course, this has led to a lot of them going missing, getting murdered. You know, this is the issue of missing and murdered indigenous women that we hear about quite often in Canada. Uh, and so especially when we're in a moment when we're talking about reconciliation and, you know, the problems that indigenous people have faced in Canada, the rolling back of intercity bus services is a real step backward. Um, and if we really want to address the problems with the transportation system, we need to start investing in those alternatives so that people have reliable public transit, whether that's within their cities, but also between cities as well. That's really important. I wanted to tie this a little bit more directly into tourism. Back in season two, we recorded with Ryan McMahon, who's an Indigenous comedian and host of the podcast Thunder Bay. And he shared with us why Indigenous tourism is so lacking in Canada. Um, one of the big points that he made was that bad transportation infrastructure cuts off access to Indigenous communities for the people who live there, but also for tourists. And it also is a missed opportunity for those tourists to go and put their dollars into Indigenous hands. We talked in that episode a bit about how beneficial Indigenous tourism has been in places like New Zealand. So I genuinely feel like access to transport is an essential service that should be available to everyone. And Canada is fully failing our Indigenous communities on that front right now. Yeah, like especially if we think about the investments that we can make in the transportation system in order to improve access. Certainly for me, you know, my top goal wouldn't be making it easier for tourists to, to get around, right? Because I think it's much more important to ensure that people have the right to access various services, including people in remote communities, people in indigenous communities, you know, should still have that same right as someone in large major city like Toronto or, or wherever else, right? It just might look a little bit different depending on what is going to work in those situations. But that's not to say that there can't be kind of complementary investments that are made so that things that benefit local communities also benefit tourists. And even having that kind of tourism and promoting that tourism can make things better for those remote communities and, and rural communities as well. New Zealand stands out for me. It's somewhere where I've spent quite a bit of time, lived there in the past. I've done a lot of travel within the country, right? And one of the things that stood out to me when I was there was that New Zealand has a very robust intercity bus system that really goes throughout the country. And that makes it much easier for people throughout the country to be able to get on a bus and go somewhere else within the country, right? You can easily book a bus, go there. The bus fares are quite cheap. And part of the reason that that worked was because tourists also took the intercity buses. And so you had the revenue from the tourists to support that degree or, or quantity of service that existed and then that benefited local people as well because they could also take those buses. Whether that would work exactly the same in Canada because of the vast geography, maybe not, but I think that there are certainly places in Canada where those things could work really well. You know, it's something that I say we should have all the time in, in Newfoundland. Certainly, you know, it, it's a part of the country that I'm most familiar with. But every summer, there are the stories about how there are not enough rental cars in the province, right? We're, we're an island after all. Tourists come and it's hard for them to get around because they can't get a rental car. And it's always like, why don't we have like a good intercity bus service that not only serves the people of the province so that they can get around the province without having a car, particularly where our province is quite older. You know, there, there are more seniors than average uh, in, in some of the bigger provinces. But then people who actually come to visit the province 
would be able to get around on this on this intercity bus system as well, right? But that would require investment from the government to set something like that up. It would take money, would would take some time and effort, whereas just allowing the automotive infrastructure to continue to exist and allowing services like Turo to come in and that try to act as a stopgap for the lack of rental cars is treated as the easier alternative because it doesn't require the government to actually do anything. And I actually think it can be a mechanism for like helping to relieve over tourism as well, because if tourists have access to transport to bring them to further flung areas, or even just like, for example, instead of going to Banff, if there were other like mountainous towns that you could visit, you might go to them rather than everyone coming to the one most accessible location. Katie, as you know, travel for me does not always go according to plan. Oh yes, I am well aware. Having made over 80 episodes of this podcast, I know that mishaps can happen when anyone travels. Absolutely. And when they do, you need travel insurance. And I couldn't recommend World Nomads more. When I ended up in the hospital in Australia, World Nomads provided me with emergency assistance so I could get the help I needed and carry on with my trip. Not only was World Nomads able to direct me to the nearest hospital, but my hefty medical bills were covered under my policy. World Nomads encourages all travelers to be prepared when adventuring abroad. Carry a first aid kit, research local etiquette and customs, learn some of the language, and most importantly, take the time to understand your travel insurance policy and what to do in case you need to use it. If things go wrong on your travels, World Nomads will be there to provide the emergency assistance you need. Benefits, limits, conditions, and exclusions apply. Be sure to read your policy wording. Learn more and get a quote at worldnomads.com. The link is in our show notes. So let's talk a bit about solutions. Obviously, there's a lot to say, but in your mind (laughs) (laughs) or from your analysis, what would you say are the top three changes that need to happen to make travel more accessible and equitable across Canada? Oh, that's interesting. Top three. Let me see if if it'll be three. But I think that some things that'll be really that would be really kind of impactful and really important right is in one part if provincial or federal governments started to subsidize the operations funding of transit services so right now a lot of transit projects in canada it's kind of split between the federal government the provincial government and the municipal government and so that's for capital costs right purchasing buses building subway lines things like that right Uh, you know something that you can go cut a ribbon on but then when it actually comes to operating that service day to day that's just on the municipal government right and so that take some money in order to run those services and municipal governments often have the fewest tax tools are very reliant on property taxes for example and so if you had you know provincial or federal governments fund a part of the operations funding of transit services that would free up money in the municipalities so that they could expand those services even further i would also say that i think we should really have if not the federal government, then provincial governments step in and create public intercity bus services. It's been very clear that the private sector has not been able to step in and and provide adequate services to people to be able to get between communities without cars. The third thing I would say is make some investment in high-speed rail. <laughs> like, you know, build a high-speed rail line from like 
Waterloo straight through to Quebec City. We need it. And then, you know, work with Amtrak to extend it through to Detroit and Chicago. But also high-speed rail between Calgary and, and Edmonton, like such an obvious one. Like why should anyone be flying between those two cities? High-speed rail from Vancouver down the Pacific Northwest. Certainly that's mainly on the American side that would that would have to happen. Like at the moment right now, Canada is a huge country. We're not going to get rid of air travel, but I think that we need to be reasonable about what we can do, and that is to try to get rid of as many short-haul trips on planes as we possibly can. And that means expanding, at least to start, high-speed rail in those really densely populated corridors where a lot of those shorter trips happen. Why should anyone be flying between Montreal and Ottawa, or Ottawa and Toronto, even Toronto to Montreal? None of those plane trips should be happening. Those routes shouldn't even exist, right? Those should be served by trains and high-speed trains at that. And so those would be my three things. Give some more funding to transit, expand intercity bus services, create public intercity bus services, and finally make some investments in high-speed rail and build those train lines. Thank you. The segue is so well into my next question. <laughs> Can I say also that segued perfectly into the joke that I've been dying to make that's not a joke anymore about Drake flying between Hamilton and Toronto? Nobody oh needs God. to be flying between Hamilton and Toronto, a 14 to 18 minute flight. It's like Elon Musk flying. Uh, he flew from San Jose to San Francisco which is like, I think like a three or five minute flight or something. like. And then he has the audacity to say he made Tesla because he wants to save the world. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, Drake is a part of some climate change group as well. And then he went on to say, well, I wasn't actually flying those flights. They were just moving the airplanes around between hangars. That doesn't I don't make care. it better. Yeah. <laughs> the flights, that makes it worse the fact that there was nobody in the plane. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Get in your Escalade and drive down that highway and take the plane from Hamilton. <laughs> Yeah. Get on the go train from yeah, Aldershot to Union Station <laughs> and suck it the heck up, Drake. Sorry, I didn't expect him to like get around the plebs, you know, sit on the train <laughs> with everyone else. So at least take exactly. his Escalade down there. <laughs> How could Drake ever be stuck on the QEW? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I deleted that note from our script now, Aaron, so you don't have to pause for me to cue that in anymore. <laughs> Katie was very excited to make this joke. <laughs> They're so bad, though, right? Because you'll have all these rich people, you know, someone like Drake, but also Elon Musk or Leo DiCaprio or Bill Gates. And like, they'll talk so much about how much they care about like the environment and how we need to be like addressing climate change. But then they'll never actually change like how they live. And they still like live in their big old mansions. They take their private jets everywhere, even to like accept climate change champion awards and all this kind of stuff. And then they're like, yeah, but you know, I buy carbon offsets and, and whatnot, right? And it's like, no, like, that's not good enough. Like, you can't claim to be a climate champion and then like, you know, live this lifestyle that is just like unimaginable to most of the population. And that is like driving so much of, of this kind of climate change and emissions and, and all these problems, right? Like, if you're not willing to change how you live personally, even like just to live somewhat like a normal person, like, why should you be getting hailed as some like, awesome person who's saving the planet when you're not doing that at all and many of the solutions that you tell us we should be taking are like don't go nearly far enough to actually address the scale of the problem that we face mm -hmm. they love to make it our problem yeah <laughs> and then on top of that we're told that then we need to make the individual kind of choices and actions in order to address the climate crisis and and to fix climate change and it's like but 
we can't actually make those choices unless there's public policy that like makes those choices possible for people. Like, you know, it's great to say that everyone should take transit or, or ride a bike, but what if they're stuck in some suburb that has been built to make them dependent on a car and then you don't have the public policy intervention to actually try to change that and, and make it so that it's more reasonable to actually take transit, improve transit in those areas, change the way that they're designed so that you have like, you know, different businesses and things that are located in there instead of just being like a sprawling thing of single family homes. Like it requires the kind of government response to make things happen, but they always want like the government to really stay out of things unless they're just like funding private companies to like, you know, make their little projects more profitable. Yep. Sorry, this is my rant. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I fully agree. Um, okay, so I did a little homework for this episode and okay. I looked up how many flights operate from Toronto to Montreal on an average day. Okay. Guess. Guess how many flights? 40? Yeah, you got it exactly right. Really? Okay. Well, also, this is an average based okay. on a couple days that I checked just to see like how many generally we're going every day. And those are just the direct ones. So I looked that up because I... Kind of, it kind of blows my mind how many people fly those distances when you can easily take the train. But I also do understand because via rail isn't always the most reliable. Like it can take more time depending on what happens with your routes. Totally. Um, like even then, like via rail kind of even makes sense on that route too, right? Like via rail is what, five five to six hours on that route, I Well, think. this is what I was going to say because I, so I used to fly Toronto to Montreal for work. And my company would always book me a flight. And one day I said, it takes me the same amount of time on the train, like from start to finish, because I have to travel like an hour and a half to the airport outside of Toronto, wait and for my plane. And get there early. Like, yeah. And then when I land in Montreal, it's an hour to get into the city. So ultimately, I was like, I honestly rather take the train. I just sit on the train and like do some work on the Wi-Fi. But I think one of the problems, and this relates to your point about high frequency rail, I think the problem is there's only three to five trains that go per day and it costs the same as a flight. So I do understand why people would look at that and say, well, I'm going to take the one hour flight. Totally. It, and it looks better. Like if you're not thinking about the kind of larger picture of transportation, then it's like that's an hour, whereas the train is five hours. But then yeah. if you add in all of like kind of the travel time and the waiting time and all those sorts of things. So where I'm going with this yeah, is flights obviously are the least sustainable option for traveling between the cities. It doesn't seem like there's a lot of investment being put towards like providing sustainable options for travel within Canada. And it's part of like the bigger, larger question that we're asking here. But what do you think needs to happen like to work not just towards like stronger infrastructure, but like more sustainable infrastructure? It's a really good question, right? And it's one that makes me really frustrated. You know, the Canadian government does really greenwash itself and does really present itself as though it really cares about climate change and that it's really kind of taking these actions that are necessary to address the climate crisis when actually we see that they haven't really been successful at reducing emissions. And especially in the past couple of years, they've been doing a lot to promote electric vehicles, right? And you know, electric vehicles will be part of the transition. I, I have no doubt about that. They are, in most cases, better than an internal combustion vehicle. 
But we can't stop there, right? We also need to be making the investments to ensure that people can also get out of vehicles because not driving is much more sustainable than driving an electric car. And so it really frustrates me then to see that as they're talking so much about promoting green transportation and all these sorts of things, that they're not making the investments that we really need in transit infrastructure, one, but also in rail infrastructure that's so important if we think about reducing these unnecessary short-haul flights. Via Rail has been asking them to do this for like seven years. They've been in power since 2015, and they've only approved it last year. For me, it kind of makes me question their kind of green credibility, right? And and it does make it seem like greenwashing rather than a serious commitment. But then if you bring up the topic of high-speed rail, you know, that isn't even really on on the plate, right? That isn't even on the options that they're considering when I think it's really something that we should be doing instead of after we've made these massive investments in automotive infrastructure that force so many people to get around by car, it's time to try to equalize those investments, especially on these corridors like southern Ontario through to Quebec, that is like the the peak place where these investments should be being made, where we should be investing in um, high-speed rail to eliminate these flights and also just to make it easier for people to get around in that corridor to get between these different cities, especially as the cities have become more expensive and continue to get more expensive, that it, it just makes sense to make these investments. And so it makes me incredibly frustrated that that doesn't happen. And I don't think you're going to see it happen until you really get more kind of people organized in order to demand those sorts of investments from the government. Because right now, part of the reason that you're seeing so much investment in electric vehicles and so much attention on electric vehicles is because Canada has a big automotive manufacturing industry. They want to benefit from building more electric vehicles, but Canada also has a major resource extraction industry. And there's going to be a lot of minerals and a lot of mining that's going to be necessary for the batteries that go into all those vehicles. 75% of global mining companies are headquartered in Canada, which is something that many people don't realize. And so there's a big kind of corporate lobby that exists both on the mining front and the automotive front to promote this as the means through which we address climate change and and its contribution to transportation and you know there's a far less powerful lobby for transit and trains and, and things like that especially because we've done so little investment in them for so long so it's economically convenient to frame evs as the best solution we have for sustainable transport certainly and it also requires less work the infrastructure is already all here. We're all already dependent on cars because of decisions that have been made over the course of basically a century now. And so it requires more political work to come in and to say, actually, now we want to encourage you to get around in a different way to for more of you to get rid of your automobiles, whereas instead we could just you know, promote the automotive industry, certainly that is better for the economy and for many of these companies because it's more profitable The more if more people have to buy vehicles rather than take the train or transit or buy a bike. In part, what we're seeing is how kind of economic incentives get in the way of actually making things better and, and really having a truly sustainable policy that improves mobility for, for everyone. Mm -hmm. I know in your book, Road to Nowhere, you argue that electric cars are not a silver bullet for sustainability. I loved that line. Thank um, you. <laughs> <laughs> I know you wrote an entire book about this, so yeah. it's probably very hard to summarize. But could you share some of your main thoughts around the concept of EVs as a means for mitigating the climate crisis? 
Sure, yeah. As I said, I think that they have a role to play, especially in a society like Canada that has been built for the car. We're not going to get rid of automobiles overnight or even at all. And so my concern with the focus on electric vehicles and with treating that as the means through which we address the transportation system's contribution to climate change, we miss out on those possibilities to look at transportation in a different way, right? Rather than just you drive a car with an internal combustion engine right now, in the future, you'll drive a car with a battery. There's not much kind of vision there, right? It's a very basic transition and it's still a transition that is very resource intensive because while the electric vehicle in most cases will have a lower life cycle emissions than an internal combustion vehicle, it still does have a significant kind of contribution and emissions footprint because you're still just a few people getting it, getting around in a vehicle that weighs a few tons, right? There's a lot of energy that's needed to propel that vehicle, all that unnecessary weight, but there's also a lot of minerals that are necessary to build the batteries to power those vehicles. And what's presumed right now, what you know, the agencies who who work on these things like the International Energy Agency estimate is that there goes, there's going to be a significant increase in demand for those minerals. That's going to mean an increase in mining. A lot of that mining happens in the global south where there's terrible environmental consequences of that, but also human costs associated with it. And there's also a growing push to expand that mining in the global north as well, in countries like Canada in particular. And often that's going to mean consequences for indigenous communities and remote communities in particular that don't often get listened to when it comes to these sorts of consequences and economic development decisions. And so that's kind of my concern with electric vehicles. Yes, they have a role to play, but do they have the size of the role that our government is currently telling us they should play? I think that there should be more of a focus on getting people out of cars altogether rather than just on electrifying all the cars that are on the road today. So we need to broaden our imagination when we think about future approaches to transportation. If you could reimagine a transportation infrastructure that is more sustainable, but also considers the needs of poor, marginalized, and vulnerable people, and there was there were no barriers, and you could just like snap your fingers, and we were in that future, what would that future look like here in Canada? That, that's a tough one, right? You know, there's the kind of the the utopian ideal that you'd want to achieve. But then at the same time, it's like... What's realistic? <laughs> exactly. Does only thinking about the utopia really help us, right? And, and certainly I think that there are some ways that that it can, because it can it can show us what we should strive for. And even if we don't get all the way, then, you know, as they say, shoot for the moon. And if you miss, you're at least among the stars or whatever, right? I, ideally, you know, I think one of the things, as I was saying, that, that a lot of kind of North American urbanists do is they look at cities in Europe and they say, ah, you know, this is so perfect. If we could just replicate that, it, everything would be great. But then you think, you know, Europe has a different built built environment than many North American cities. You know, their, their cities are still much more dense than many of ours have become over this period of time. And so does it make sense to totally structure what we're imagining on, on how they've built things? I would like to see a much greater investment in public transportation, right? So that people have this 
option to get around in a different way. And hopefully we can encourage people to get out of their cars to a much greater degree than they can right now. Investments in cycling infrastructure so that our roads aren't just solely given over to cars and that you can safely feel that you can ride a bike to get at least to the main parts of a city, if not broader than that. As e-bikes become more and more common, I think that they're really well suited for the North American city because they allow you to move longer distances in a quicker period of time. And whereas in some European cities, I think that there have been backlashes to e-bikes because of how quickly they can go. I think that they can work really well in North American cities as long as we plan for you know the recycling of batteries, the safety issues, things like that. One of the things I, I would hope that we can learn from some European cities is to reduce the space in our cities that's given over to cars so that we can turn more of that space into pedestrianized areas, into parking for bikes, into bus lanes, to reduce the incentive to, to have so many cars going around cities. But as, as much as I would like it, I don't think that we're going to completely eradicate the car from North American life. But I think that there are actions that we can take, especially if we start today and start to see the benefits a few years down the line, to actually allow more people to get out of their cars and to get around in a reasonable way without having to think about driving. And I must say, just bringing it back to tourism, that kind of future, I think is really amazing because it makes it more possible for people to explore their own neighborhoods and explore their own province. Um, and for visitors to do that as well, it just makes like tourism more accessible for people as well. I will say too, as a traveler, like half the fun for me is wanting to go somewhere and travel like the locals do. Yeah, for sure. That's like one of my favorite things to do when I'm abroad, like go on the public transport because it's a way to mm -hmm. immerse yourself. It's the best way to explore a city. I've said this before on the podcast, like my way of getting around is often part, an integral part of the actual travel experience. Like when I travel to somewhere, that's something that I factor into part of the experience of that city or country or region that I'm in. And I've talked about this before, but in India, especially riding trains, it's one of my most favorite memories about traveling there, just because on the trains, it was like you were part of a whole world that just exists in those train cars. And I could sit on those trains for hours on end, just staring out the window and listening to people around me. And it was just like a type of immersion that you don't get all the time as a tourist that I really, really loved. And I miss that. Like when I think about going back to India, that's the thing I'm excited about. I want to go sit on the trains. And I felt that way about like everywhere that I've traveled. Just going on public transport is really beautiful. <laughs> no, I, I love that. And like part of the reason that, you know, I, I've spent quite a bit of time in Australia and New Zealand. Whereas in New Zealand, it's still a pretty big country, even though, you know, it might seem small from the corner of the map. But because of the robust inner city bus system, I've taken buses all over the North Island, all down across the South Island. Like, you know, I've really been throughout the country. I've visited a lot of different places in New Zealand. And it's because it was so easy to get around. Yeah, especially when I was younger and especially when I traveled solo, that was a big part of how I decided where I would travel because I don't have a license, I can't drive. And so I could only travel to places that were going to be accessible through public transport. That's a big gripe for me in terms of Canada, just because truly the reason I haven't seen a lot is because for most of my life, I was unable to access these places that I would love to go to, but just are only accessible by vehicle. Before we wrap up, any exciting travel plans in the future to promote your book, perhaps? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, as I said, I recently got back from Europe. It was the first time I'd been on a plane since COVID. 
and you know hotel prices are also higher that that's something that's changed for me as well before the pandemic i stayed in hostels most of the time when i when i traveled i i typically travel by myself but now because of covid i i won't stay in hostels anymore either to reduce the risk that i'll that i'll get covid and so that certainly changed how i think about travel because now it's more expensive because i have to pay for hotels and i don't do airbnbs like i don't do ubers so yeah, you know, certainly some different considerations now as I try to readjust to whatever this kind of life with COVID is is going to look like. Mm-hmm. It's a complicated time to travel. Yeah. Definitely <laughs> more expensive. I'm very sad that my love of hostels has been taken from me. I wish you all the best with all your travels to promote the book. I'm excited to read it. Thank you so much. You know, I, I really appreciate you having me on the show to chat about these things. You know, obviously, I've done a lot of interviews that are that are focused on particular topics in the book. So it's been really cool to like, go outside that a little bit, talk a little bit more about Canada, talk about travel, which is something I've done a lot, but but don't talk about as much in my in my work anymore. Um, so yeah, it's been really great. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the show. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to share it with a fellow traveler. Make sure you're following us on your favorite podcast app. And if you're feeling extra generous, you can leave us a five-star review or support us on Patreon. Alpaca My Bags is written and hosted by me, Erin Hines, and it's produced and edited by Katie Lohr in Canada's Toronto area. If you want to reach out to us, check the show notes for all the info you need. I'll see you in two weeks, but in the meantime, I hope you get to alpaca your bag safely and soon.